The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. The young woman responded effectively and appropriately, and she was able to get away to a location where she could call the police. As far as all the attempted abductions that seemed to be occurring in the Corvallis area, making it seem like abduction central, Lieutenant Noble said, it's hard to say if there's an actual increase or if people are much more aware of suspicious persons and are willing to call the police. From the last time we saw her, by Robert Scott. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy. Like to make you comfy, cozy, cause I love from head to... Welcome back, Murder Bookies. I am your host, Jill. I hope you're doing well and are looking forward to Valentine's Day. I want to shout out to Camp Crystal Lake 79 for your review on Apple Podcasts. Your kind words are greatly appreciated and it helps me reach new Murder Bookies. Growing my podcast, it is a goal for 2023. And you can help me to do this. It really matters. Now, this is our second book of 2023, episode 56, The Light That Helps Others, from the last time we saw her by Robert Scott, part one. Our author, Robert Scott, presents these events as they are happening. You feel like it's almost in real time. I mean, you really sense the turning of the wheel as family and investigators, the community, and suspects respond to the events, the revelations, and the courts. It is a different presentation from so many other true crime stories that we've shared. While we could use a little editing tweet here and there, it's really nothing significant. This is an incredible story of 19-year-old Brooke Wilberger and the impact of her disappearance on her family, the community of Corvallis, Oregon, the surrounding areas stretching all the way to New Mexico. Coming in at 320 pages, Scott weaves the story of seemingly unrelated facts that he delftly brings together and ties up in a courtroom bow by the end. Always read the book, Murder Bookies. This is also an oddly uplifting story, which sounds crazy because it is true crime. But that's the way it's presented. Californian Robert Scott attended Diablo Valley College and was a delivery driver prior to becoming a best-selling author. A couple, James DeVeggio and Michelle Michaud, committed murders in the county where Scott was living, and it caught his interest. In 2021, his first book on their murder spree, Rope Burns, was published, and a career was launched. In 2007, Scott was awarded the Best East Bay True Crime Author by the East Bay Express newspaper, for his book, Killer Dad, Husband, Father, and Murderer. In 2011, his book, Shattered Innocence, about kidnapped victim J.C. Dugard, made the New York Times bestseller list. Several of his books have been used for the basis of true crime TV programs on Investigation Discovery's Deadly Women, True TV's Crime Library, and Nothing Personal. Robert Scott was living in Redding, California, when he died at home on January 9th, 
2015, at age 73. So rest in peace, Mr. Scott, and thank you for expertly telling these stories to us. Remembering the victims of these crimes is quite a legacy. Now, getting down to business. In this Murder Shelf Book Club, we begin with food and drink. Much of our story takes place in Oregon, so I found this amazing sweet hot bacon guacamole recipe on the Oregonian Oregon Live site. So I thank them very much for this deliciousness. Hands down, this is the simplest recipe I have presented to you. Bacon, sugar, hot sauce, guacamole. That's it. Bake the bacon with sugar on top and let it caramelize. Mix hot sauce of your choice, more or less is up to you, in guacamole, which you can certainly make yourself or you can just buy your favorite. And I bought my favorite because I am lazy. <laughs> let the bacon cool, chop it up, mix it into the guac, serve with chips. Voila. The layers of flavor in this. From sweet, savory, spicy, and the creamy guac itself, your taste buds will dance with the joy of it. And if you add the salty from chips or testitos, whatever you like, just scoop it. Delicious. Now, I am pairing this with the Michaud Columbia Valley Sauvignon Blanc 2021 from my favorite wine club, Naked Wines. Justin and Katie Michaud are individual and successful winemakers and married. So they came together as winemakers to create this fruit of the vine deliciousness. A bright wine, it feels full in your mouth, light, crisp. You taste pineapple, green apple, and passion fruit. So how different is that? And there's a slight almond tang on the finish. It really complements the sweet and spicy of the guac. A regular bottle of the Sauvignon Blanc is $21. But if you join Naked Wines, it's $12.99, and I am in favor of savings. Information on this recipe and drink are found on my blog at www.murdershopbookclub.com. So swirl and sip, and let us get into our story centered in the beautiful Northwest United States state of Oregon. The Pacific Northwest's most beautiful college town Corvallis had 55,000 residents and 19,000 college students and was the 20th safest city of its size in the United States out of 344. About 9.20 a.m., he was passing through picturesque Corvallis, noticing a buffet of college girls, the kind he liked, each rather isolated walking on shady streets. Many times in the past, he had come upon similar circumstances and taken full advantage, yanking some poor woman into his car, making them strip before raping them. This is a perfect scenario for him. Every day, 20-year-old Diane Mason walked from her off-campus apartment on the isolated residential streets, cutting through the Oak Park apartment parking lot, making her way to Oregon State University. Diane noticed the green minivan in the parking lot, and then it pulled in front of her, blocking her path. She skidded around the minivan, the driver rolling down the window. He called to her, quote, I'm lost. Can you help me? End quote. And then explained he was heading to a fraternity. Diane gave the man with two earrings directions, but he looked confused. He said he had a map in the back and let him pull it out so she could show him. Out of the van now, 
he rummaged through the open sliding door. Diane mused to herself, why was the map in the back of his van if he was lost? Very uneasy, Diane stepped back because things just didn't feel right. Always trust your guts, murder bookies. I'm yelling in my head, run, Diane, run. Don't stand there, run. Diane would later say, quote, I began to get a really uneasy feeling about all this since I was alone on the street. There was no traffic. There was no noise. And this person I didn't know had just gotten out of his vehicle, end quote. She told the guy she had to walk to class. And walking off, she heard the van drive away. Inside, the man was seething at his failure to abduct her. But he was not about to give up since he was in prime trolling grounds. He doubled back. Jade Bateman attended OSU and worked part-time in the athletic office. Near Riser Stadium, where the football team played, Jade noticed a green minivan. Cruising slowly, the man inside was staring at her. Uncomfortable, Jade decided to confront the man, whose driver's side window was down. Can I help you? He responded that he was looking for the athletic offices. Jade gave him directions. All this while, she held on to her cell phone because she'd been speaking to her mom, Phyllis, as she spoke to the man. Later, Jade said she'd actually insisted her mom stay on the phone as she just knew this wasn't a good situation. Phyllis immediately got it that Jade was unsettled by this encounter and listened intently. Bob Clifford, an athletic director at OSU, also noticed Jane's encounter with the green minivan with Minnesota plates as he drove into Riser Stadium parking lot. This just wasn't a normal situation. Pulling up on the minivan's passenger side, the driver refused to acknowledge Bob. The man wore a baseball cap, sunglasses, and a light spring jacket. Not one to be ignored, Bob pulled in front of the van, putting his car in park. Now the man and Bob exchanged glances, with Bob giving Jade a look as she now walked away. He was incredibly pissed. Two attempts thwart him. But wait, wait, he'd seen another woman in the Oak Park Apartments parking lot cleaning lampposts. Maybe she'd still be there. Long hair pulled back in a ponytail, pretty, vivacious 19-year-old Brooke Wilberger attended Brigham Young University in Utah and was now on summer break. Brooke was born February 20th, 1985 in Fresno, California, to Greg and Cami Wilberger, who moved the family to Oregon, settling in Veneta, about 40 miles south of Corvallis. Her oldest sibling was Shannon, age 30. Then came Stephanie, 27, followed by her brothers, Bryce and Spencer, 25 and 22. Her younger sister was Jessica, 13. As a young child, Brooke had been treated for a speech impediment, one she was not teased about by her siblings. Overcoming this, Brooke enjoyed high school and achieved a 4.0 GPA. Not only was she bright, but she excelled at tennis and track and loved being part of the 4-H club, caring for horses. Quiet, but not shy, Brooke even had a part in the Pirates of Byzance production. She met boyfriend Justin Blake while at Elmira High School. Both members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Justin went off on a mission after high school, with Brooke writing to him at least once a week. She planned to do her mission at age 21, the minimum age for LDS women. 
While the other Wilberger kid had attended OSU, Brooke was more independent-minded and wanted to attend Brigham Young University. She began working part-time to save up the money. A reasonable sense of self and security, Brooke had taken self-defense classes as part of her preparation. Her major? Speech pathology, specializing in children, of course. May 24, 2004. Up at 6.30 a.m., Brooke put on her Brigham Young University soccer t-shirt, fresh jive sweatpants, jeans, and flip-flops, and enjoyed her cornflakes. She then went over to help Sister Stephanie and her husband, Zach Hansen, who managed the Oak Park Apartments in Corvallis. She would be cleaning the lampposts of dirt and spiderwebs. And Brooke really hated spiders. I'm with her on that. Beginning at 8.45, she finished the west side of the complex around 9 a.m. About 9.30, resident Mark Wacker noticed Brooke in the parking lot cleaning post number three. At 9.45, Brooke's cousin, Chris Horner, saw her diligently working on the light fixtures. Around 10 a.m., Stephanie spied Brooke cleaning near Unit 1224, waved, and headed out to take her brood of kids to preschool. A little after this, a Corvallis disposal truck driver, Jim Kessie, pulled into the apartment lot to pick up cardboard from the recycling bin, and there was Brooke waving at him as she was still working on number three. Accident. There were no other cars around. No people either. Nathaniel McKelvey, who lived in Unit 1229, heard a loud piercing scream, quote, short in duration and blood curdling, end quote. Karina Howry also heard it, looking out her back door and then front windows, but didn't see anyone. These were, quote, the last people to hear anything escape from Brooke Wilberger's lips, except for a man in the green minivan. After two failed attempts, he now had what he was looking for. The only thing left in the Oak Park Apartments complex testifying that Brooke Wilberger had been there were two flip-flops, end quote. When Brooke missed lunch at 12.30 p.m., Stephanie Hansen and Chris Horner began looking for her. Around 1 p.m., Chris found her blue flip-flops, about 8 feet or 2.4 meters apart. The thong pulled out of the right sandal. All right, this was not good. By 3 p.m., having searched the entire complex, incredibly upset, Stephanie and Chris called Corvallis PD. There was no way Brooke just willy-nilly changed her plans without a word to anyone and then left her flip-flops behind? Brooke didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't party, and her longtime boyfriend was off on a mission. She wasn't an impulsive party girl, and the officer was dispatched, taking down the known information. Finishing teaching for the day, Cammie Wilberger called her daughter Brooke's cell phone and was surprised when her son Spencer answered. He told Cammie they couldn't find Brooke. Demanding he not tease her, Cammie quickly realized her daughter missing was real and not a joke. Tammy later told Robert Scott, quote, I knew something was horribly wrong. My arms, everything in my body just drained out, end quote. On the case, Cammie called friend Cheryl Blake, Justin's mother. Her husband was a bishop in the LDS ward, so think parish, and soon after the network of LDS members in the entire region was activated. I should probably mention that my husband's family is Mormon, for full disclosure, but this is an amazing interconnected support network. 
that is incredibly useful and clearly eager to help. By that night, several hundred people were doing search and rescue missions with LDS members on the internet and ham radios, spreading the word about Brooke. Flyers flew off the copier at Kinko's. Brooke's dad, Greg, was employed by Borden Chemical in Springfield, Oregon, and he was heading out on a business trip to San Francisco when he learned of his daughter's disappearance. Canceled the flight, got a rental, and drove home as quick as possible. When the Corvallis PD got all the pertinent facts about Brooke's disappearance, the Benton County Emergency Services arrived. This was officially an abduction. Officers from Corvallis PD, Benton County Sheriff Department, and the Oregon State Police kicked in, making resources available. Mary's Peak Search and Rescue responded, setting up a grid pattern with volunteers swarming outward. Overnight, Thousands of abducted posters appeared all over Corvallis and the immediate area. Okay, fun fact. The Corvallis Safeway and Domino's Pizza provided free food to the 300-plus citizen searching volunteers with the epicenter at the Oak Park Apartments. Good for them. Donations of flashlight batteries came in. How smart is that? Soon, 500 were searching parks, fields, riverbeds, wooded areas. Disabled searchers, they rode on motor scooters. Benton County Emergency Service spokeswoman Peggy Pearson told a reporter that this response was incredible and it included other religious denominations, OSU's Calvary Chapel and Corvallis Evangelical Church. Yet by the afternoon on May 25th, there were no tangible clues. Wilberger's son-in-law, Jared Corden told the media about Brooke, quote, she's a great person. She's a bubbly, beautiful girl. It is extremely out of character for her to disappear, end quote. The Eugene, Oregon FBI arrived, working on a profile of the abductor's characteristics that might aid law enforcement. May 26th, the investigation was now being coordinated from an incident room in the law enforcement center in Corvallis. Tips were flying in being evaluated and processed as law enforcement coordinated their tasks, checking sex offenders, canvassing the neighbors, and setting up press conferences run by Corvallis PD's Lieutenant Ron Noble. Noble told the public that five persons of interest had been identified based on their criminal histories, but were not suspects as the level of fear skyrocketed. Women being abducted in broad daylight was anyone safe. By day four, more than 200 businesses were donating food and drinks to volunteers. Areas with thick underbrush, woods, rough terrain were being explored. LDS member Shannon Reich, exhausted from nonstop searching, went home to rest. But that didn't happen. Instead, she began making pink support ribbons, which then seemed to be everywhere overnight, a way to show visible support for finding Brooke. Cammie and Greg Wilberger were incredibly gracious and appreciative of the incredible outpouring of support. Yet, by the 27th, no leads. Holding a press conference, the family spoke about Brooke, her frustration at getting a B in AP history, dressing up as Superman during Spirit Week, raising $20,000 as a member of the Children's Miracle Network charity getting a 1,000 Krispy Kreme donuts donated for a fundraiser, her excelling at the long jump in track, 
They concluded with Cami Wilberger saying, quote, we would do anything to bring Brooke home. We feel that families are forever and we know that we'll see her again, end quote. But the question was, in this life or the next? This reflects a very important belief in the LDS church that families are together in the afterlife. A huge support for the Wilbergers came from Elizabeth Smart's family. You may recall that Elizabeth was abducted by, quote, a crackpot zealot in 2002, end quote. So in this timeline, two years earlier, and held captive for 10 months. Who took her? He and his partner are beneath contempt and they will get no attention from me. The point is, Elizabeth's parents were given incredibly valuable advice on how to stay positive under these horrendous circumstances because they had lived it themselves. May 29th to May 30th, bike and horseback riding clubs were searching as other cities where Brooke may have been taken got involved. I hope I'm convincing you of the utterly immense search that's going on for Brooke, an incredible undertaking, spontaneous, intense, and sincere. But we are all human, and the mental and physical fatigue and frustration was beginning to seep in. After nine grueling days, some volunteers just needed to rest and renew. At its peak, over a thousand people were out looking. By June 1st, it had dropped down to 200. Over and over, the Wilbergers thanked everyone for their love and their support, but even they knew this couldn't go on forever. The weekend of June 5th, 2004, would be the final mass search for Brooke. Landlords were asked to search buildings, basements, sheds, anywhere they could. During this last big push, over 200 tips came in, and the media learned that one of the persons of interest was now designated a suspect. Sung Koo Kim, a 30-year-old unemployed microbiologist who had been recently arrested for stealing female students' undies at OSU in Corvallis. When Kim was arrested, over a thousand items of evidence was seized. Was this the abductor of Brooke Wilberger? Who is this Sung Koo Kim? Well, April 4th, 2004, Beth, a student at George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon, so an Asian male, about 30 years old, come into her residence hall, walking purposefully, refusing to make eye contact with anyone. Hmm. Now suspicious, Beth notified the authorities as she and a friend Meredith tracked the man to a black Honda Accord. Beth memorized the license plate. Oh my God, Beth is a murder bookie at heart. I just know it. Detective Dodd Balzell of the Newburgh PD contacted Beth who told him about the odd man, and she was sure he had not been a student. Balzell spoke to another student, Lacey, who said that she had spoken to an Asian male in the laundry room who was kneeling down looking into a dryer. When she spoke, he immediately got up and left the building. Other students, Jenna, Whitney, Stephanie, and Meredith, indicated that their undergarments were missing. Well, you know, what did this guy look like? Well, he's about 5'10", 175 pounds, clean-shaven, no glasses, no scars, or visible tattoos. Running the license plate, it came back to Sung Koo Kim, living in Thai Guard, Oregon. Arranging a photo throwdown, Beth was shown six photographs with Kim's among them, and she immediately picked out Kim as the man on campus acting weird. Lacey, however, wasn't so sure. 
Detective Baltzell contacted the Thai Guard PD, who pulled a file on Kim, and Baltzell learned he was a suspect in a daytime burglary on Lewis and Clark College campus when security found him with female underwear. He wasn't arrested at this time, but the police escorted him off campus and told him to leave the area. Balsam knew from his years of experience that, quote, a person who does burglary to obtain undergarments to satisfy an arousal is known as a fetish burglar and is often considered extremely dangerous because in many circumstances, the fetish burglary is a prelude to a sexual assault or lust murder, end quote. So this guy is uh, someone to be concerned about. Balsal obtained a search warrant to look for the specific underwear the college women were missing. And on May 13th, Kim, in possession of more than a thousand pairs of women's underwear, was arrested on burglary charges, which is really a fairly minor charge. Then the news about Brooke Wilberger broke, and the Thai Guard PD sent information to the Oregon State Police on Sung Koo Kim. Oregon then notified OSU's police department's Lieutenant Phil Zerzin. There was evidence. Panties marked with, quote, Sackett Hall OSU first floor, end quote, were confiscated. Detective Balzel contacted the OSU students, Stacy and Ashley, who identified their underwear. In cases involving the theft of women's underwear, trace evidence can identify the owner. Women's underwear thieves often clandestinely observe their victims using cameras, videos, cell phones, which are probably downloaded into their computers or stored on CDs or DVDs. This enabled them to keep a permanent record and relive the fetish and the sexual arousal. Sung Koo Kim's computer had been seized, but not the other family computers in their home, nor anything from his car. Receipts had been found that proved that Kim had made trips to Corvallis, but Oregon State Police Officer Kenneth Piscina advised there could be more in the glove box where burglars often kept mementos. He suggested that since Kim had a substantial number of rifles and pistols, a nighttime execution of the new search warrant might be safer, given that he would be asleep at the beginning. Saturday, May 29th, an entire SWAT team descended upon the Kim residence in the wee hours of the morning safely taking Kim into custody and utterly traumatizing Kim's parents and sister, who had no idea on earth what was happening. I always feel for the families, they are completely in the dark and suddenly someone is breaking down their doors. Seized that day were laptops, computers, digital cameras, boxes of bras and panties kept in the entertainment room, where one keeps their underwear evidently, notebooks, CDs, 23 identified videotapes, a Sony Handycam, female panties pulled out of the trash, and a book, The Beginner's Guide to Lockpicking. Oh boy, Kim's car was gone over forensically too. It wasn't long before the media tied Kim's arrest to the Brooke Wilberger case, with Lieutenant Ron Noble affirming, again, that Kim was a person of interest. Bail was set at $1.5 million, and Kim was released when his parents raised the funds. Kim hired Portland attorney Michael Greenlick, who insisted his client had nothing to do with Brooke Wilberger's disappearance, and that this was all just speculation. When Kim couldn't afford to pay Greenlick, public offenders Janet Lee Hoffman and Joseph O'Leary took over as Kim pled not guilty. 
Oh, and then four days later, Song Koo Kim was arrested again from charges out of Multnomah County, where he was accused of stealing women's underwear. Hmm. Now bail was at an insurmountable $10 million. But wait, why so high a bail for stealing undies? I mean, it's creepy. It can be dangerous, but it's stealing undies. Well, because of the new evidence found on Kim's computer, over 40,000 images of women being tortured, whipped, burned, and branded. Kim had made two covert videos of women in a laundromat without their consent, and Kim had Googled countries that do not extradite to the U.S. Okay, this is more than a red flag. This is a red mountain. Kim's attorneys presented his alibi for the day Brooke vanished. That morning, he was making online stock trades on Ameritrade. Kim then went to Circuit City with his dad, confirmed by a store video. But, 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 not so fast. The Multnomah County District Attorney, Mike Shrunk, did not find this alibi airtight. Kim arrived at Circuit City at 12.52 p.m., at least three hours after Brooks' abduction, and the drive from Corvallis to Tigard took about 90 minutes. He could have hidden her away somewhere or disposed of a body in that time. And the Ameritrade transactions were on his sister's laptop, not Kim's. And there was more new, really creepy evidence. Shrunk revealed that in Kim's possession was lint. Yes, yes, dryer lint. And it was labeled Oak Park Apartments, end quote, which is Brooke's last known location. He was also cyber stalking. He had biographical information on 10 OSU women, one of which was named Lindsay. And Lindsay moved to Oak Park Apartments in late May. Yes, the same ones. Now, it could be coincidence, of course. But there was more lint. Yes, more lint. This time labeled OSU Swim Apartment. And guess where Lindsay lived? You got it. And Lindsay strongly resembled Brooke Wilberger. So theory, had Sunko Kim somehow mistaken Brooke for Lindsay, his obsession? Now, this speculation caused a huge back and forth between the DA and defense attorneys. Hoffman and Leary insisted court documents put Brooke's abduction at the earliest at just after 10 a.m. to the latest at 10.50 a.m. Kim just didn't have time to commit the crime. Given a polygraph, Sung Ku Kim passed. A reporter from the McMinnville News spoke to Sung Ku Kim's college friend, Richard Johnson, about their time at Washington State University. He and Kim had gone target shooting and hung out. But Kim's reclusiveness increased and his fascination with guns and porn turned the guys off. Kim thought the Columbine spree killing was justified because the perpetrators had been bullied, which is not true. I know, I know. We all heard this over the last 20 plus years since this tragedy, but the facts and the myths are in conflict here. I'll do a book on Columbine one of these days, kind of like I did with the John JonBenet Ramsey case, where all the misinformation remains rampant. But anyway, Quoting Robert Scott on Sung Kul Kim and his friends, Kim insisted he was an angel of Jesus Christ. They absolutely shunned him after Kim bought an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle to the dorm. 
All right, as odd as all of this is, none of it is evidence that Kim kidnapped Brooke Wilberger. So the investigation continued, but moving in different directions. Back in the real world, a member of the Willamette Rowing Club, Allison Titus, had a brainstorm. While rowing the 150 miles on the Willamette River, the team could also search for Brooke Wilberger in an area which had not been searched yet. Many members signed up to row and search, including three-time Olympian Tiff Wood. The Wilbergers gave the rowers pink ribbons to tie to their oars. An ecumenical prayer vigil was held to keep hope and optimism high with the Calvin Presbyterian Church, King's Circle Assembly of God, and Corvallis' First Presbyterian all out in force supporting the LDS community. Cammie Wilberger said, quote, We've been amazed. The initial search was from people in the church that we go to, but this has crossed over, end quote. And I love this. This is an example to all of us. We should all come together at times like this. A thank you concert was held on June 12th, a huge quilt of support being made for the family. People had bought squares, and then the squares were put together to make the quilt, and the money went into the Find Brook Fund. But events elsewhere continue to impact the case. Out of the blue, in Walla Walla, Washington, 39-year-old resident Richard Wilson went on a notorious crime spree through Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Utah. Back in 1995, Wilson had raped a young woman, been arrested, convicted, and jailed. Paroled in February 2004, Richard Wilson was living with his parents until May 18th, when Richard abruptly robbed a house, swearing he'd never go back to jail, taking off. Richard Wilson raped a girl in Big Junction, Utah. Next, June 9th, while robbing a laundromat, Wilson brutally murdered 17-year-old Teresa Garcia in Mountain Home, Idaho, where she lived with her aunt and uncle. Teresa was shot twice and managed to crawl outside seeking help, where she collapsed. According to Mary Ruth Hammond's article in the Thule Tribune Bulletin, Teresa Garcia was an honor student, a member of her school's soccer team, a good kid, and an active member of the Church of Latter-day Saints. Teresa wanted to go to college, and she was looking forward to a career in law enforcement when Wilson ended her dreams. His spree continued, with Wilson robbing AA Home Laundry in Grantville, Utah, of $50. Oh my God, what is with the laundromats in this book? Curse of the laundromats. Oh. Wilson shot 17-year-old Kimberly Lingard in the head, a Grantville High School senior who worked there part-time. In critical condition and undergoing brain surgery, Kimberly's best friend, Sarah Reed, said Kimberly had a ton of friends and was great fun to be around. The Deseret News reports, quote, Lingard as an easygoing, patient kind of girl who always knew everything was going to work out for the best. Good friend Kira Peacock described Kimberly. She was just so beautiful, end quote. Fortunately, Kimberly survived Richard Wilson's attack and presented the game ball for the homecoming football game in September. But Wilson's spree continued. Around 7 p.m., he robbed the Skull Valley service station in Dell, Utah, shooting 59-year-old Diana D. Jensen, the co-owner of the station. Shot in the neck, Dee managed to make a 911 call giving a description of Wilson's car. An APB went out 
and a Utah state trooper spotted the vehicle. A chase ensued with troopers throwing out spikes, which blew out the tires in Wilson's car. Wilson got out of the car, sat down, took off his shoes and socks, crossed himself, and shot himself, committing suicide. He had been paroled for four months. Of this, Kimberly's friend Kira Peacock summed it up, quote, I can't believe that he would run and shoot her in the back of the head. That's so cowardly of him. I just hate him, and I'm glad he's going to rot in hell, end quote. With all this crazy, police had to see if Wilson might have been in Corvallis on May 24th. They confirmed that Richard Wilson was not there when Brooke vanished. Scary dude, gone, and he'd no longer be able to hurt anyone. June 11th, a new theory arose and a person of interest popped up about 20 miles from Corvallis in Lebanon, Oregon. A man in a Honda pulled up next to a 17-year-old girl, ordering her into the car. Fearing he had a weapon, the girl cooperated. After driving a few blocks, he answered a call on his cell phone, became really upset, and put her out of the car. Like, all right, what the hell was that? Eight hours later in the same area, a woman was riding her bicycle when a Honda pulled up next to her, seeming to ask directions, only she couldn't understand him, and he drove off frustrated. A couple out walking their dog noticed this happening. Alert due to the earlier abandoned abduction, the couple and the girl called Lebanon Police Department to report this. Officer Kim Hyde took the reports, and she noted the similarity of description. The driver was a white male, between 30 and 40, light-colored hair, goatee, blue jeans, gray sweatshirt, a red and blue baseball cap, and the cars, Honda Accord, silver in color with gold tinges. This color Honda was only sold between 1998 and 2002, and it's called Heather Mist. The police put out the story, hoping to generate a sighting. June 14th, 2 a.m. at Ma's Dairy Farm in Albany, Oregon, a bartender listened as a customer read a newspaper about the suspect in car and pointed out that he matched the description and he drove a Honda. Very uncomfortable, the bartender asked him to leave, and he did so without issue. She tried to get his license plate, but couldn't see anything but an S, and the man in his Honda seemed to vanish. Then something came up. A 16-year-old in Albany had a blue pickup truck pull up next to her, ordering her into the vehicle. She refused and ran like hell. He followed her, asking her if she needed a ride. Saying no repeatedly, she finally hid in some bushes, and he gave up. The teen described him as white, 30 to 40 years old, medium build, clean shaven. Was this the same guy? Had he shaved, or were these other wackos unrelated? Either way, with all this happening, women were frightened. Advice overflowed. Tell someone where you're going. Travel in pairs. And especially, be alert to your surroundings. The arrow now tilting to critical on the dial. Some carried mace. Others jogged in groups. In Elmira, Pastor Lori Forbes of the Fern Ridge Faith Center requested that a self-defense class be started at the local high school that Brooke had graduated from. Soon, other ministries, the Chamber of Commerce, and the city of Venita were promoting these classes. 
the calendar flipped to July. At a local festival, keeping positive, the Wilbergers handed out ID kits containing tips for keeping children safe that included fingerprinting cards, a DNA collection subkit, and stats about abductions. Thousands of kits were handed out. The Wilbergers are trying so hard to keep the faith and support the community that is supporting them. There are good people out there. I do doubt it every so often, but then I read about people like this. No leads was causing a great strain on the Corvallis PD, already struggling with budget cuts. Lieutenant Ron Noble was still unaware of Jade Bateman and Bob Clifford, who had both separately sent in tips about the green minivan guy, now buried in the mountainous to-be-checked column. July 10, 2004, the viable suspect, Sung Koo Kim's computer forensic dive, produced more tintillating evidence. He had accessed the OSU website, and he had searched, quote, rape, torture, genital mutilation of women, end quote, in relation to the women he stalked. His computer had a file which read, quote, hood, mirror glasses, video camera, digital camera, six nylons, bring panties and bra to put on her, end quote. Well, full stop. This tells me Kim either committed a violent rape or he was certainly planning to do so when he got arrested. Now, would this evidence sway a jury? Would it sway you? Are we into minority report territory? You know, as creepy and viable as Kim appears, the FBI is sternly warning, do not focus singularly on one suspect in Brooks' case. Putting all their eggs in one basket could come back to haunt them. And then the state police found additional forensic evidence on Kim's computer. He had also searched, quote, asphyxiation, strangling, whores, killers anonymous, female strangulation, faces of death fan club, and corpse of the week, end quote. This generated a new search warrant, which was granted. More came out. Worse came out. He had Googled, quote, hair pull, tit pull hang, slap hard, hog tie, fist, cut off blood to head for 10 minutes, needles in tits, cut off tits, end quote. This guy is not well. And between 2002 and 2004, Kim had also tapped into child pornography. Okay, this is a total pervert here. Kim's defense team of Hoffman and O'Leary hired a private investigator, Mike Hintz, to confirm Kim's alibi. Kim's dad insisted his son was with him at Circuit City that day. They bought a laptop, returned it, and bought another at a different store. Hintz found the sales clerk who waited on the Kims, Cameron Owlett, who remembered them and the ad that they had brought with them. Hintz also spoke to Kim's sister, Yung's friend, Jamie, who called the Kim house looking for Yung that morning around 11.45. Kim had answered the phone, and Jamie's phone bill would prove this. The defense filed motions to lower bail, which had now risen to $16 million as the additional charges were added, stemming from those damning new computer revelations. If bail was lowered, 
They suggested that Kim would be released into his parents' custody with an ankle bracelet and continue to see his psychiatrist two times a week. The prosecution, led by Benton County DA John Haraldson, fought like hell to prevent this, writing, quote, Soong Koo Kim is a present danger of physical or sexual victimization to women. It's a simple concept of a depraved predator hunting prey for a fate of such macabre proportions that it would rival even the darkest nightmares of the human mind, end quote. Oof. The crush of media descended upon Corvallis and the Kims as Judge Janet Holcomb set a date for the matter. On September 29th, around 6.30 a.m., Rachel, a 21-year-old OSU student, was taking a walk on campus when out of the bushes came a man grabbing her around the shoulders. But Rachel had taken the tips to heart, was alert and ready. Knocking his hands away, she sprayed him with mace, making him flee as Rachel raced off screaming all the way down the street. Calling the police at OSU and Corvallis, the response was immediate, quickly forming a perimeter looking for the attacker. White, early 20s, black jacket with hood, black pants. So this guy had dressed for the occasion, huh? Tips came in and Lieutenant Phil Zerzin said, quote, one of the positive things is that the educational efforts about abductions have had their effect. The young woman responded effectively and appropriately, and she was able to get away, end quote. The next afternoon, a suspect was arrested, 21-year-old Aaron James Evans, a rail charmer. Back on August 20th, Aaron had been arrested for public indecency. His arraignment for this was September 29th, but he called the court telling them his wife was in labor with their baby. Was it postponed? Uncertain, but baby or no, Aaron showed up in Corvallis on the 29th, harassing and stalking women outside a store so badly she called 911. Evans was detained, but evidently talked his way out of it. The next morning, after accumulating evidence, Evans was arrested for the assault on Rachel. Question, had Aaron Evans kidnapped Brooke Wilberger? The person of interest number had now climbed to six, arraigned via closed-circuit TV for his grand jury hearing, which is somewhat unusual for 2004. The media was kept from the courthouse. The grand jury charged Evans with attempted kidnapping, attempted sexual assault, menacing, and harassment. All right, this poor guy's wife and newborn, like, dude, seriously. And his wife filed documents to separate from him immediately after the grand jury's decision. Digging into Aaron James Evans, he had worked for a roofing company, which put him in Corvallis regularly, but he'd quit on May 24th. His stepsister, Jessica Kaywood, spoke to KTU reporters saying that Aaron would disappear on occasions, sometimes for days. About the time of Brooks' disappearance, Jessica said she'd seen him with swollen black eyes, a bruised nose, and bloody lips. Sounds like this guy was in a fight, right? Robert Scott writes, Kaywood added that she had a good hunch where Brooke was located, and by that, she didn't mean Brooke was alive, but rather dead and buried. Kaywood said she'd be speaking with detectives shortly. Detectives found Aaron James Evans' name among the 4,000 tips that had been called in about Brooke, too. 
Speaking to the eight news crews that showed up, Benton County Undersheriff Diana Simpson read a statement, quote, The investigation of Mr. Evans is at the same level of response that is given to all persons of interest. At this time, there is no information directly linking Evans to Wilberger, end quote. Simpson urged the media to confirm information so they didn't send the Wilberger family into an emotional roller coaster. Simpson added they had spoke with Ms. Jessica Kaywood, finding no evidence that would help locate Brooke Wilberger. After questioning by DA office investigator John Chakoti, Aaron did not have an alibi for the attack on Rachel. Finally, Aaron admitted having contact with Rachel in Corvallis and being sprayed with mace. Mace residue was then found on his jacket and pants. Locked up, by December, Evans decided to accept a plea deal. In return for dropping the more serious charges of harassment and kidnapping, he pled guilty to attempted sexual abuse and menacing of Rachel. With no prior criminal history, the judge sentenced him to 60 days. Well, given he'd already been in jail for 70 days, Evans was released as a free man. However, there were catches. Freedom meant he had to register as a sex offender, and he'd be on probation for the next few years. He had to attend mandatory sex offender counseling and take periodic polygraphs. He had to forego contact with anyone under the age of 18 years and avoid where children congregated. He could possess no videos, images, photos, magazines, films, computer files, texts that could be used for sexual arousal, and he could not enter any adult entertainment establishments, no topless bars, no peep shows, zilch, and he had to cooperate in the investigation of Brooke Wilberger. All right, it didn't take long. On December 21st, his parole officer wrote, quote, Evans reported to me that he's been living with his wife and two children since being released from the Benton County Jail, end quote. I know it isn't what we hoped for. Aaron James Evans was forced to move out, and they added a stipulation to his list of can't do's. He could also not go to places of higher learning. (laughs) Never a dull moment. A report came in from Willamette Valley that on October 10th, a man in a Toyota Camry was following a group of young women at a 7-Eleven, staring at them, making them decidedly uncomfortable, enough to alert the police. He was located shortly thereafter, with officers discovering he put masking tape over his license plate, so it appeared to be 455BLX instead of 455BEX, so covering up center E-prong. Now, why would you do that, right? Not for any good reason, that's for sure. The driver, Aubrey Cutsforth of Vancouver, Washington, was 36 years old and a total nervous wreck. But he agreed to speak to the police about Brooke. God, there has to be something in the water. The search of Cutsforth's car found a second set of license plates, pornographic pictures, lubrication, not for the car joints, and masking tape. In his interview, he admitted to having urges once in a while, and he'd drive somewhere, watch women, and gratify himself. But he denied having anything to do with Brooke Weiberger's disappearance. Citations were issued, 
but it was found his alibi actually stood up. Cutsforth was not the guy. A week later, a grim discovery occurred. In Tillamook County, a hunter came across some human remains in a forest clearing. Little could be determined by sight. After a heart-stopping day, the lab determined that the remains were of a white male, not Brooke Wilberger, as the emotional ups and downs continued at a frantic pace. If they weren't Brooks, whose were they? November 2004 brought a third set of attorneys for Sung Koo Kim as Des Cannell took over, requesting documents, files, yada, 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 but also the evidence in the Brooke Wilberger case. D.A. Haraldson refused. There were no formal charges against Kim regarding Brooke, and it was an open case. If he was charged, the evidence would be made available, but he hadn't been. Meanwhile, in the Korean community, Sung Kul Kim had his supporters. They felt he'd been singled out, called a panty thief. Well, he is a panty thief. And none of the other five suspects had had their names dragged through the media, except Aaron Evans. With the support of a dozen Korean Christian pastors, they drew up a petition to the court which read, quote, Sung Kul Kim should be treated in a manner that is unbiased, fair, not prejudicial or discriminatory. We should remember that people are innocent until proven guilty. Being different shouldn't subject a person to mistreatment and humiliation, end quote. I support this wholeheartedly, but do not misunderstand. This does not negate the fact that Mr. Sung Koo Kim is seriously deranged, in my humble opinion. As soon as Kim and Evans began to fade from the community collective memories, a new lunatic appeared. November 10th, 6.30 p.m., a woman was leaving a drug alcohol center when some guy ran out from behind a dumpster and attacked her, pushing her into her car, pulling, punching her in the face. She fought like hell, managed to get in her car, and drove off. In a safe area, she called the Carvalis PD. He was a 25 to 35-year-old male, white, 5'9", wearing a stocking cap, black coat, and pants. Immediately, the police sprung into action as Corvallis PD Captain John Sassaman briefed the press that this attack was very different from Brooke Wilberger's. He didn't bring his own car. He attempted to get into her car. But, but wait, all right, why are all these attacks happening? Captain Sassaman believed that this was all happening before, but now women were fighting back and reporting it. Remember, never, 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 never go to a secondary location with someone who's grabbed you. Fight now. Make your stand as your chance to survive diminishes greatly when you go to a second place of his choosing. Do not do that. So. The search for Brooke Wilberger was greatly scaled back after the frenzy that had occurred back in May and June. The book explains that in five months, the police had received 4,500 tips, 350 possible sightings of Brooke, 500 people had been named suspicious, 54 labeled persons of interest. All right, they kept that kind of close to the vest, didn't they? Citizen volunteers had spent 8,000 hours searching 4,000 acres. 
Benton County Search and Rescue had spent 2,800 hours searching 6,600 miles of highways, roads, and dirt lanes. Old posters were taken down and replaced with new fresh ones. To keep awareness high, Brooke bracelets with her photograph and pertinent information were circulated, paid by those donations to the Find Brooke Fund on her website. Some officers were ordered to take vacations. Quote, how can I take vacation? Brooke is still missing. End quote. The family hung in there, remaining positive, united, and appreciative. And that concludes episode 56, The Light That Helps Others, in The Last Time We Saw Her, by Robert Scott. I know it's a terrible place to pause, but there is so much more to come, and you will not believe what's coming in episode 57, The Stars Cannot Shine Without Darkness. And time to announce my next book. It is She Married the Green River Killer, second edition, an exclusive authorized biography by Penny Wood. For some time now, I wanted to do something that highlights the impact a serial killer has on his family because their story is important. They are these collateral victims of serial murder and their struggle is real. Judith is Gary Ridgway's third wife whose early years were filled with neglect and abuse. Then Judith married the man of her dreams, Gary Ridgway, and for 14 happy years, she shared her life with an attentive, kind husband, never suspecting that there was a hidden dark side. Then abruptly, Judith is thrust into a terrifying nightmare, trying to merge the loving husband she knew with him being the Green River Killer, one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. This edition includes an extensive follow-up with Judith Ridgway, the intimate details of a painful journey she experienced, and much more. And I will be interviewing author Penny Wood. So stay tuned. I always say, read the book. And this is no exception. Buy this one just for the personal photos from Judith's photo albums. Amazing. Thank you for listening. You can email me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com or find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out my blog and my merch store on Spreadshop. Happy reading, murder bookies. Always trust your gut. Source material, show notes, photographs, snack and drink information for the last time we saw her trilogy is found on my blog. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hussena and lyrics by Otto Harbach. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy. Like to make you comfy, cozy, cause I love you.